0: You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast.
1: Your journey. Your journey. Your, your journey, journey. Your journey starts here. Here.
2: Good evening. So, good evening and welcome to the Pratt Library's Writers Live series. I am Vivian Fisher manager of the African American Department, and I bring you greetings. This evening we are pleased to have a young poet, Muhammad Tall, and our guest writer, Julie Lidscott Haynes. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Muhammad Tall, who is a Baltimore City's current Youth Grand Slam champion, former Baltimore City Port ambassador, as well as a two-time Muslim interscholastic tournament spoken word champion. Um, Muhammad has opened up for various entertainers such as Native Dean, the National Port Laureate, and Congressman Elijah Cummings. Traveling around the country on a social justice poetry tour, he has performed performed at various venues including the John Hopkins Health Symposium on the Prison Industrial Complex and the annual ICNA Convention that took place at the Baltimore Civic Convention Center in front of thousands of people. In the fall of 2015, Muhammad began working for a nonprofit organization named Do More Baltimore, which aims to tackle social justice issues through poetry. A current political science major with a minor in African American Studies at Morgan State University, my for my alumna Muhammad believes that the art is at the forefront of every revolution. Muhammad.
3: Good evening. Um this is like my third performance this week and this is like the third time I've had to hear my bio and I realize it's way too long. <laughs> so I really got to cut it down. Oh yeah, I, I could tell. <laughs> um like she said, my name is Muhammad Taw. Um, Something I left out, that's my old bio. Uh, I'm the current Baltimore City Youth Poet Laureate um, for the 2017-2018 uh, year. Um, and a few years ago, when we first brought the Poet Laureate Competition to Baltimore, um, I came in second place and became a poet ambassador. And Enoch Pratt Library organized a citywide tour as well, um, where we went to every single library um every single branch in Baltimore and they had different young people come out and they came and they shared their pieces with us and then we shared our poems with them and I was very inspired by this. I was still in high school I was still in high school. I was a senior and it kinda inspired me to write this piece. Um it's titled King. It's a very creative title. Um <laughs> and when I say King I'm not referring to Um, A monarch, I'm referring to he or she that possesses the will of fire, um, which is the youth. Um, So here's my piece. Don't you know they're praying on your downfall, king? Don't you know that Moses is coming for you, king? Don't you know that I've seen magicians turn servants, staffs turn serpents, pharaohs go preserved and prophets go unheard, king? So tell me, what's the word, king? Because I've seen man take golden calf for God. And I've seen God rain terror on man for forgetting who God is. King? And God is. King? I've seen hollow hearts search for peace on empty prayer rugs. So I suggest you, 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 and you go find one. Because soon... Everybody will want a piece of you until there ain't no peace in you, and then they end up peace in you. King, look what they did to Martin Luther. King, they will tell you, we love you. Then Mandela, your spirit, rip you of your heart. But you have Winnie for backbone. You have Betty for backbone. You have Coretta for backbone. So stand strong, King. Because they will try to apartheid your apostle. Claim you as their equal, yet view you as hostile. They'll shoot you on sight. King, any sight, ting of your black frame will be fright. Ning, this is why the cage bird still sings. King? But you? You ain't cage bird. You? You more like Albatross, king. They, they keep trying to shoot you down, king. And when they shoot you down, king, they wear you around their necks, king. These mariners ain't got no respect, king. They may crown from thorns until you rule your kingdom. Because they think the king's dumb. That's why I teach my sons. Get it, king? Because if you don't, they will guillotine your manhood. Separate you from your mans and your hood. But your hood is kingdom come. Tell them people that the king is here and I plan on raising my seeds, planting ghetto prophets, posing prophecies and rewriting policy, teaching future kings to love their struggle. But you, you oak tree to the rest of these saps. You, you the leaf king. I see in your eyes you want to leave king, but don't forget who you leaving king. Don't forget the horror. Tell our story like you Stephen king. Stop letting them appropriate our life here. Stop letting them recreate our nightmares. Somebody tell Iggy the Jigaboo Snow Bunny, it ain't funny. Cause we got homies on deathbeds on they last leg trying to remember when enough is enough. Now Blondie trying to play tough but ain't utter a word when Tamir Rice lost his wings in the streets. You see, everybody wanna act black until another black body is left laying in the streets. But acting black and being black are two different things, but I see it in your eyes. You just want to be king. And for that, I'll stand beside you. Thank you. Um, like I said, my name is Muhammad Taw. I'm the 2017 Baltimore City Youth Poet Laureate. Um, next year, my first, po- my first collection of poetry will be published. Um, so hopefully, maybe we'll do some here at Enoch Pratt. <laughs> Um, thank you. You can follow me on social media at Fresh Cut Mo. That's Fresh Cut M-O. Um, and thank you for having me. Thank you, Julie. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Muhammad, for that wonderful piece. So without further ado, we we'll are introduce Julie lithcott hames is the best-selling author of How to Raise an Adult, She served as dean of freshman and undergraduate advising at Stanford University, where she received the Dinkelspiel Award for her contributions to the undergraduate experience. She holds a BA from Stanford, a JD from Harvard Law School, and an MFA in writing from California College of the Arts. She, She is a member of the San Francisco Writers Grotto and resides in the Bay Area with her husband and two teenage daughters and her mother. Please join me in welcoming our guest author, Julie Littcott Haynes, this evening as she discusses her latest work, Real America, Real American, A Memoir.
1: Thank you, you, Vivian, for having me to your marvelous, marvelous library. It is an honor to get to be here at Enoch Pratt Free Library here in Baltimore. As part of my tour with Real American, which came out nine days ago, um, I had to sort of look around and ask myself, because I've been on a tour since before the book came out. I left home the day before it came out and traveled east. Um, Being on this tour, what I've made a commitment to is that while I have a chance with a published book uh, and a publisher and a publicist, while I have a microphone... I want to step to the side and make room for young writers behind me on the path, on the journey. So I've asked every bookstop, every bookstore, every library to find a a youth in the local community who might open for me. I have to say I've spoken alongside 12 and 13-year-olds in Charleston, South Carolina, and 18-year-old out in Silicon Valley. Muhammad Tal, you are exquisite. And you were exquisite tonight, and I am grateful that you have joined me on this journey. Let's give Muhammad another round of applause. Wow. And none of them were the the tough act to follow that you are. So (laughs) thanks, man. Right. I want to acknowledge Rachel from the Ivy Bookshop out there in the hall. She's got copies of the book that will be for sale later. I would love it if you are moved, if you are inclined to know more about what I've written in this book, please, please pick up a copy there. It is, of course, easier these days to buy a book with the press of a button on a phone, but we must make sure that we are entering the local bookstores in our community that are the lifeblood of our community. So please, please check that out if it interests you. I am from Silicon Valley, California. I am not from Baltimore. So when I come here and have the chance to be here, I'm delighted when friends show up to support me. And in the audience today, I have Megan Maxwell, who's a friend from freshman year in college. We took calculus together, which was was hell. And um, but, it bo- it bo- <laughs> but it bonded us to one another, so, you know, if that's what it took, you know, for me to meet Megan, I'm grateful for calculus. A former Stanford colleague, Marietta, is in the audience, and um, yay, right? <laughs> You're her kid. And... Um, a former student of mine, 2015, Beatrice, is here. Um, she began her freshman year, which would turn out to be my last year at Stanford, so I didn't get to see you grow and become a sophomore, and junior, and senior. But I love the fact, um, nevertheless, since we didn't know each other well, that you're here. And then um, A.J. Verdell walked up a few moments ago. And A.J. Verdell is a celebrated professor here at Morgan State. She knows Muhammad Tall. A.J. Verdell is a family friend of my sister, Engina Lifcott, and her wife, Billy Avery, and I met A.J. Uh, thanks to Billy and Engina. The last time we may have seen each other was their wedding many, many years ago. And A.J. wrote this amazing book, The Good Negress, and A.J. is one of the blurb writers on the back of my book. So I am so grateful to you, A.J., for um, shining a light on the path, um, showing me how I might walk my path toward this book. Thank you for supporting it with your words, um, and thank you for being here tonight. All right. This is a prose poetry memoir, which means I have violated the rules of prose at times, the syntax rules, in order to breathe poetry into the words. So the, the language sometimes expands or contracts, Um, in accordance with my intentions for the language. Um, It is my journey as a black and biracial woman uh, in America. I'm 49, so from the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s till now, it is my journey to locate a self that I could love in a country where black lives don't matter. I'm going to... Just try to read you bits of it that give you a glimpse of what I've tried to do. Um, Anyone who teaches writing or is a student of writing knows that a good story is supposed to have an arc. You take your reader on a journey with greater tension um, and suspense, perhaps, or conflict, and you work and work and work, and then you get to this place of a climax, and then you come down. Well, my book has more of a pit than an arc. It is an inverted arc, okay? (laughs) Okay. Because this is my journey to locate this self in America. So my, the nine parts of my book, I believe there are nine, go. It begins like this, an American childhood, becoming the other, desperate to belong, self-loathing, emerging, declaring, Black Lives Matter, onward. So that's the journey of my book. And I'm just going to read you a little bit from the front, a little bit from the middle, and a little bit from the end. It begins like this, where are you from? Here, no, I mean, where are you from from? As a child growing up in the 70s and early 80s in New York, Wisconsin, and Northern Virginia, there was something about my skin color and hair texture that snagged the attention of white children and adults. Their need to make sense of me to make something of sense out of nonsensical me was pressing. My existence was a ripple in an otherwise smooth sheet. They needed to iron it down. The truth is, I'm not really from here. The truth is, that's not what they were asking. The truth is, they were asking, why are you so different from what I know, so unclassifiable? There's love at first sight. There's American at first sight, and from dozens of where-are-you-from interactions with Americans over the years, I've learned that American at first sight is about looks, primarily skin color and hair texture, not nationality. I am the woolly-haired, medium-brown-skinned offspring typical when blacks and whites have sex which was considered illegal activity in 17 of the 50 United States in 1966. 1966 was the year before the Supreme Court decided in Loving v. Virginia that the laws preventing interracial marriage were unconstitutional. And 1966 was the year in which my black father and white mother, an African-American doctor and a British teacher who met in West Africa, Chose to go ahead and get married anyway. They married in Accra, Ghana in 1966. I was born to them in Lagos, Nigeria in 1967. I come from people who broke the rules. Chose to live live lives outside the box. Chose hope over hate as the arc of history was forced to bend a bit more toward justice. I am the goo in the melting pot. Rhetorically championed, theoretically accepted, actually suspect in places hated, despised. In the lead up to the 2008 presidential election, a persona stepped to the forefront of public consciousness, that of the real American. More than an individual you want to have a beer with, more than the everyman Joe the plumber, The real American is code for an entire era when men like Andy Griffith ran Mayberry or John Wayne swaggered through a western town. When white men cloaked in clothes of real or perceived authority could take what they believed was rightfully theirs with an air of ownership to the opportunity, to the land, to the people, and of belonging at the center of the situation, whatever it was. A time when the word he meant all genders, when normal and regular meant white. This fictional character, the real American, became a talisman, a lifeline to a more halcyon past for some white men and women, bewildered by capitalism's demand for low-paid laborers and by the rising tide of legal and regulatory equality that dared to lift others' boats They looked around at us, the others, knocking at the door of the hiring manager, the landlord, the admissions dean, the local restaurant. Looked frantically around and began to see fewer, less of themselves. Nursed by a milk of white supremacy, fed to them as what was natural, right, and good for them, these whites believed the rest of us were interlopers, thieves at the door, threatening to take what was not ours, They grew incensed at the growing number of us others who refused to accept our place at the bottom of America's ladder, underneath even the most lowly of whites. These real Americans, found a voice in their candidates, grew in number, became a mob who raised slogans, signs, fists, and arms, who longed to make America great, normal, regular, White, again. These newly emboldened real Americans issue angry orders to the rest of us. If you don't like it, go back to where you came from. There is no back to where I came from. You stole my homeland from me. Me from my homeland, I mean. I don't even know where it is. Literally. Literally. I came from Sylvie. I am the untallied, unpaid, unrepented damages of one of America's founding crimes. I come from people who endured the psychocultural genocide of slavery, reconstruction, and Jim Crow, who began to find a place here really only quite recently amid strides toward effecting a more perfect union of liberty and justice for all, I am Sylvie's great-great-great-great-granddaughter. She was a slave who worked on a plantation in the late 1700s in Charleston, South Carolina, the harbor town through which close to one in two African slaves entered America over the centuries. Sylvie bore three children by her master, Joshua Eden, by which I mean he raped her. There is no consent in slavery. I come from people who survived what America did to them. Ain't I a real American? When the amorphous mob harumps about the needs and rights of real Americans, they don't picture me, people like me. But is anyone more a product of America than those of us formed by America in an angry war with herself? This is rhetorical, theoretical. Of course we're not more than. We're less than, not even equal to. The remainder of an imperfect equation. The child who wasn't supposed to exist. The undesired other. The bastard child of illegitimate rules who dares even to be. The contradiction of being less than in a nation whose forming documents speak of liberty and justice for all plagued me for much of my young adult life. I'm so American, it hurts. I adored Daddy. He was 50 when I was born, and my childhood coincided with the heyday of his career, which began against all odds amid the racial hatred of the segregated Jim Crow South, Oklahoma. I was his last child of five, the product of his second marriage to my mother. And I knew from the way his eyes twinkled whenever he looked at me that he loved me no matter what. He gave me a variety of nicknames. Old sport, knucklehead, which sounds crude to my grown ears. But then, spoken in the butter of his baritone, it felt like melted love. He never had to call for me twice. I came running every single time. When I was little and skinned my knee, he'd pull me up onto his tall lap, kiss me, and ask with all seriousness how I was going to become Miss America with that scar. I didn't know then that no black woman had yet been crowned Miss America and that no black woman would be crowned Miss America until 1983. Instead, I heard in Daddy's words that I was beautiful, perhaps the most beautiful girl he'd ever seen. We all called him Daddy, even my mother. He was formidable, commanding, gruff, loving, and funny. I hung on to his every word, whether it was Baby, bring me my cigarettes, or a well-placed retort to the news recited by the anchorman on TV. Daddy was the protagonist, the lead. Daddy was the son. Daddy never liked the Fourth of July. I couldn't understand it, though, because I adored the parades, songs, and flags the neighborhood barbecues, the explosion of firecrackers and the smart looks on everyone's faces that revealed the innate understanding that our country was better and by extension we, the people, were better than the rest of the world. My mother was the one to inform me of daddy's opinion about the fourth and she did so in a whispered sideways glance kind of way with no explanation as to why he felt it. I understood from the way she said it that it had something to do with Daddy's past, his experiences, his blackness. Her silent why bespoke pain too painful to discuss, so I never asked. Didn't think it related to the America I was inhabiting anyway. Didn't think I was black in the ways he was. Thought America was beyond all that. I was wrong. Looking back over the years of even my earliest childhood, the clues were everywhere. Back in Sneedon's Landing in New York when I was little, I'd begun to sense that something might be wrong with people with dark skin. I lacked the language to describe it and the intellect to analyze it, but I felt the chill of it in my bones, the red-hot heat of it surging up the back of my neck when I was out and about with Daddy. Daddy was six foot two and lean. With a neat, tightly coiled afro, he kept supple with afro sheen, and skin that was dark and crinkly like the top layer of a brownie. On those occasional weekend days when he wasn't traveling or busy at the desk in his den, he'd take me with him on an errand in town and every now and then to an event in Manhattan. Holding his, sidewalk, holding his hand walking down the local street or a bustling city sidewalk, I noticed that some stranger stared at him with eyes that steamed like a cauldron, as if they could brand him like an animal with their searing focus if he dared to look them in the eye. I'd look up at my tall daddy for reassurance, pleading with my small brown eyes to know what was going on. But he gripped my hand tighter, kept his eyes focused straight ahead, pursed his lips tight, and kept walking. Fast forwarding to high school an all-white high school in Middleton, Wisconsin. I spent a lot of time at my best friend Diana's house and she at mine. One day during sophomore year when I'd gone over to her house to hang out, I found her in the basement rec room watching a movie on her VCR. It was gone with the wind. She looked up at me and said hello, then turned her gaze back to the television screen and sighed like a southern bell. Ah, Wouldn't it have been great to have lived back then? No. Why not? Because I would have been a slave. Oh, but I mean if you weren't black. But I am black. I don't think of you as black. I think of you as normal. At the start of my senior year, I was serving Tony Stovall, another friend. Nice to see you, another friend. I was not serving Tony Stovall. At the start of my senior year in this all-white high school, I was a student body president. I turned 17 that November, a few weeks after the presidential election that reelected Ronald Reagan. My best friend, Diana, made me a huge birthday locker sign filled with words and images cut from the pages of Tiger Beat, Seventeen, and other teen magazines. She'd woken up extra early to get to school in time to tape it to my locker before my arrival. We did this kind of thing for each other. Her birthday was in November and I'd festooned her locker just two weeks before. I entered the school and headed left toward my locker, which was located in the bank reserved for seniors in the central hallway near the administration, conveniently close to everything. Even above the din of student voices and slamming lockers, I could hear my high heels clicking with precision on the shiny cement floor. I could already see the birthday locker sign, 50 lockers in front of me, with its five sheets of white paper taped one to the next to the next in a sort of vertical column with shimmering silver ribbons taped to the top and sides spiraling out into the hall. I felt a surge of anticipation of the attention I would get that day. A friend shouted happy birthday as I made my way down the hall, and I nodded, smiled, and shouted thanks. When I got to my locker, I stood and admired Diana's creativity, reading from top to bottom all the bits of language and imagery she'd gone to such trouble to cut out and glue on there for me. I opened the locker, put my backpack inside, and pulled out the books I needed for my first two classes. Then I turned and smiled at someone else saying, happy birthday, clanged the locker door shut, twisted the combination lock a few times. I strode down the main corridor toward my first class, feeling like I owned the place. Some unknown minutes later, someone took a thick black marker and wrote, N-I-G-E-R in three places on my birthday locker sign. Even spelled incorrectly, I knew what they'd meant. I spotted it in late morning during the passing time between classes, and immediately my mouth went dry. I found a marker and crossed out each iteration of the word. At day's end, I took the sign home. In the privacy of my bedroom, I pulled my senior year scrapbook from the bookshelf above my desk and opened it to the first blank page. There, I pasted my birthday locker sign accordion style so that it could be completely unfolded to resemble what it had looked like hanging on my locker. Before closing the scrapbook, I took a pair of scissors and, like a surgeon excising tumors, carefully removed the three iterations of the shameful word, then threw them in the trash. I closed the scrapbook and returned it to the shelf containing the recorded history of my childhood. I'd told no one about my locker sign, and I'd go on to tell no one for decades. Not my parents, not the school, not my best friend, Diana. For more than 20 years, though, the truth of that day hunkered down inside of me and metastasized. I was the nigger of my town. Fast forwarding now. I'll read this section in honor of Houston, Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands. On August 29, 2005, Katrina makes landfall, and the levees do not hold, as the army knew they would not, and the water sweeps life out from under the living. In New Orleans' ninth ward, black people on rooftops wave signs hastily scrawled on pieces of cardboard, help us, The people plead with their bodies and their signs, sure as the helicopters fly over that their government is coming for them, will help them, instead the government flies by. Over 30,000 residents stream into the Louisiana Superdome, a building whose roof would leak, whose air conditioning and refrigeration would fail, where without enough food, water, restrooms or restroom supplies, these residents would live for five days. As the Superdome grows more dank with a stench that is a mixture of rotting food, urine, and feces, the government relocates people to the Astrodome over 350 miles away from their homes in Houston. The Astrodome and the organizational wherewithal of Houston's local government save the day and save lives. Some evacuees will stay for weeks, some for months. The former First Lady of the United States, Barbara Bush, takes a tour of the Astrodome on September 5th, 2005, when it is brand new in its role as savior. She chortles, so many of the people in the arena here, you know, were underprivileged anyway, so this is working very well for them. Most of us black folks are Democrats. We believe as Democrats that our government is an organization that will be there for us even when our fellow citizens who see us as other seek to Shut us out. Kick us out. Shut us down. But in late August 2005, we, those who live in the Gulf Coast, we who have loved ones there, we who have no connection to the area but watch on television, learn that our government has had no plan for us. Them niggers should be grateful, she might as well have said. Here, have a hot dog. We gave you a damn hot dog. Dog, be grateful. Pledge your allegiance. Stand for it, stand. White Americans, you are infatuated with the Statue of Liberty, whose tablet contains words of welcome for all, who did in fact welcome you and your ancestors, and you are simultaneously infatuated with carving lines and borders between who does and does not belong here, with yourselves on one side of the line and the other half of America on the other. You think your whiteness makes you better than the rest of us. You make us your scapegoat, your excuse for your violent rage. It's not all of us. Stop saying it's all of us, you say, my white brethren. You want to be treated as an individual instead of a stereotype. And I will get out of bed anyway and go out into the streets of America to do my work, to find true love, to raise children who know how to work hard and be kind to others, to speak. We, the people, cannot continue to abide the stories of police and civilians on witness stands telling us that in just seeing our black bodies, they were terrified. You have to be terrified for a justifiable reason. God gave us this black and brown skin. The skin God gave us is not a reason for you to be justifiably terrified. We are terrified of you. We continue to try to forgive, to live. Even dying and in death, we deserve no human mercy. Eric Garner told police I can't breathe when they had him in a chokehold for selling cigarettes illegally. Tamir Rice lay gasping for breath, his toy gun on the ground nearby, and the policemen standing over him did not offer CPR to this 12-year-old boy they knew by then was only a child with a toy gun. Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown were left dead on the sidewalk for hours, their bodies unclaimed, The local police do not even lift these boys' bodies off the sidewalk, do not properly care for the corpse. The mothers frantically call, text, plead. Have you seen my son? Please help me find my son. Trayvon shot no one, neither did Tamir, nor did Michael. But the white supremacist, Dylan Roof, who went to a Bible study at Mother Emanuel, Church in Charleston, so that he could shoot people and did shoot people in a church, shot his gun off in a church and killed nine people and then fled. When he was apprehended, Dylan Roof, the white supremacist, the police got him a Burger King cheeseburger because he was hungry. The black family members of the nine black people slain in cold blood by Dylan Roof said in front of television cameras that they forgive Dylan Roof and they are commended for being able to forgive the white shooter, Dylan Roof, who opened fire at a Bible study meeting at Mother Emanuel Church and killed nine. We know forgiveness is all there is in an America where we're not equal, where we watch as our children are killed because of the color of their skin, and Dylan Roof, a self-professed white supremacist who systematically mowed down nine in a church, flees the scene and later is apprehended and given a cheeseburger because the poor boy is hungry. We watch. We get up the next morning. We give birth to baby boys whom Hollywood finds adorable and who show up in commercials and television shows and are coveted by white audiences for their cuteness. And 10 or 15 years later, we've raised those boys to be men who transition before white eyes into thugs. Some of us live in middle and upper middle class white communities thinking them safer, thinking them to be the place of arrival, of transcendence. We see Trayvon gunned down in a gated white community because he looked suspicious, because his skin color and hoodie made him look suspicious, and we gulp down our fear, we who think we have passed into a better status with our money and privilege and degrees, we gasp knowing we are wrong. No, there is no place for us, no place that is ours in America. We have the talk with our sons, teach our sons how to kowtow to police, how not to draw attention to themselves, how to raise their hands in the air, how not to defend themselves even when they are sure they have done nothing wrong, how not to reach into their pockets for anything, not even to turn off their music. Please, baby, remember, do not reach into your pocket to turn off your music. We teach them this while trying to also teach them to love themselves and not to be ashamed of their beautiful black bodies, of their selves. My son, I look at the faces of Trayvon, Freddie, little Tamir, who is all of 12, and I see you, my son, my precious son, my beautiful black boy, so smart and bookish, and inquisitive, and philosophical. I see you grow taller, grow muscles, grow a man's face, and I weep for the future self who will leave this home and discover that in pockets of this great country you are loathed, feared, and worse. My son, you did not ask to be born. I chose you. I asked you to be mine. I gave you a skin of brown, and you are exquisite beyond measure. You think, if given the choice, any of us would have asked to be born black in America? You think we want to be the object of your evident fear as you pass us on streets and crowd away from us on elevators? In the wake of the Zimmerman verdict, Questlove wrote so hauntingly about this. He described himself as a six-foot-two, 300-pound black man, and he pleaded, quote, I mean, what can I do? I have to be somewhere on Earth. Correct? Correct. Sometimes I do wonder, where is God in all of this? I almost vomited when I heard an American doctor thank God for saving him from Ebola. It was the fall of 2014, those terrible few months when the scourge of Ebola had once again reared its head in a few African countries, and we Americans were fearful that, despite our best efforts at isolation, An African plague could invade our borders. A Liberian man named Thomas Eric Duncan had already succumbed to it here in the U.S. while visiting family after showing up with symptoms summarily disregarded in the Dallas hospital where he sought help. By the time anyone realized he was more than a black guy with a fever, the disease had consumed him as it does any victim, eating him from the inside out, liquefying him. The hospital has since apologized to Duncan's family for systemically denying him adequate care. But the same tragic fate was not met by this white American doctor, Dr. Kent Brantley, I heard on NPR one day. Brantley had become infected with Ebola while treating patients in Liberia and had been airlifted back home to become the first Ebola patient ever successfully treated here in the United States. Emerging as a survivor, the victor, from his intense treatment at Emory Hospital in Atlanta, they held a news conference for him where he stood behind a podium with his enormous team of doctors and nurses behind him and declared, God saved my life. And what went unstated but implied was that God didn't give a shit about the 1,350 Africans who had already died of the disease in its recent epidemic to date. To be an American is to see God's hand in the U.S. healthcare system and in the experimental serum known as ZMAP, which Brantley was the first human being ever to try. To be an American is to believe God plays favorites and that of all his children, he favors Americans most of the time. But to be truly devout is to be a family member of one of the nine blacks murdered during Bible study at Mother Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston by self-professed white supremacist Dylan Roof and to forgive Mr. Roof for killing their loved ones in a house of God where presumably God was watching. But maybe, maybe God did give us the choice. Maybe he gathered a group of souls together and asked, now who wants to go down there and inhabit a black or brown body? Who wants to take that on? Who wants to live a life in America where you may be treated like the scum of the earth? Who will walk among white people and be their opportunity to learn compassion? Maybe God asked for volunteers. And the bravest souls looked around at each other and raised their hands. Thank you. Thank you. Can we take some questions, questions, comments? Oh, right. There's a mic going around. Talking to the mic, folks. Hi. Hi. Uh,
4: So how long did it take for Dan to see the looks?
1: So for those who have not read the book, as my old dear friend Megan already has, Dan is my husband, my white Jewish husband. I've been with him for 30 years. I feel so old saying that. (laughs) I met him at 20. I'm about to be 50, and that's how the math works. So the looks, as Megan knows. I refer a couple times in the book to the looks of strangers, those sort of snarling, white, racist look. You learn to notice on the street. You learn to keep your eyes straight ahead. You learn to quicken your step. And in the early years of our togetherness, we met in 87 I cite a story in here of around 92, 93, when we went out for Italian food in the north end of Boston, um, which is known for being a racist place. And I noticed the sneer, but he did not. I just hurried us up and walked us quickly, and he said, what are you doing afterwards? And I told him. He hadn't noticed. By the time we went to a wedding for a family member in 96 in the Florida Keys, another place where it can be hard to be black, um, he noticed. There was somebody staring at us as we walked to the rehearsal dinner. That sneer where almost the lip begins to, to tremble. You know, that sort of I'm growling at you like a dog look. Um, so somewhere between 92 and 96, being my wife, uh, walking alongside me in life, Dan began to notice.
4: So many questions, but probably the first one is I'm very interested in this dip, reverse yeah. <laughs> curve. And where was it that it started climbing back out? I don't know if you sure. read a part of the book. No, that, I, yeah, no I skipped But I'd I skipped be interested in tell. knowing if there's this Quickly. moment yeah. where oh, things yeah. start going there's back There's a moment.
1: Yeah. Um, so by now I'm a dean at Stanford. Okay. I'm um, dean of freshman and undergraduate advising. I'm senior at Stanford University. And an executive coach was brought in around about 2007 to work with a team of us. We weren't getting along very well. So she, I was the only black person, uh, three black women, maybe four black women, and then the senior guy was a, uh, uh, sorry, I was the only black person, three white women, three or four white women, and then our boss was a white male professor. And when the executive coach was brought in, I think I thought my job was to tell her what was wrong with everyone else. Really. I mean, I was feeling pretty good about myself. I was doing good work. You know, I was annoyed with some of my colleagues. <laughs> I thought you might laugh when I said that. Like, who works with a coach and thinks the problem is everyone else? <laughs> me. Um, okay, <laughs> Marietta's. And Marietta's a former colleague of mine, so she's, you could probably picture me then and the people. All right, so anyway... I, um, I get the feedback, the 360-degree feedback. The feedback is too aggressive, too emotional, too big with my energy. And I said, you might as well look up angry black woman in the dictionary and tell me not to be those things. But, oh, by the way, how stereotypical, like, how, how can you stereotype me like this? And she said, my coach, who was a white Buddhist Aikido master named Mary Ellen Myers, She smiled and she said, How's it working for you, Julie? And I said, Well, to be honest, not great. Because if I'm too big with my emotion, with my anger, with my response, then I got to circle back and apologize. She nodded. And I said, I want to know why I'm this way. She said, That could take 20 years of therapy. How about we focus on when you're this way? And you can begin to notice it coming, and you can begin to identify the feeling before it. Gets you, and you can decide do I want to say something or not? If I want to say something, what do I want to say? What I came to appreciate was Mary Ellen wasn't telling me to stop being me, she was trying to help me be much more in control of my voice. I thought that somehow being more reflective and quieter for even a few moments would make me less powerful and strong. It did the opposite. As I began to interrogate the feelings, the buttons that were getting pushed, that made me want to respond, react. I began to learn that the buttons were around race, were around feeling that they thought I was inadequate, that they thought I wasn't smart, that they didn't believe me. And the root of that for me is blackness. The root of that for me is the N-word scrawled on my locker that I told nobody about, that hid inside of me for decades. So I began to summon all of that. All of those memories of trying not to be, being called the things I was, and trying never to be called that name again, and all of the performing that I tried to do to be black, but smart, black, but accomplished, black, but, you know, Harvard Law School, okay? I began to understand and interrogate all of that stuff. And finally, I was able to tell Mary Ellen, as we continued working, that as a child, I had hated being black, that as a child I was afraid of black people. And as a child and young adult, I wanted to do what white people expected. And I was so ashamed of all of that stuff. When I finally said it out to this out loud to this woman I trusted, I was released from it. I was released. It was as if all of a sudden my psyche could just start to turn like a well-oiled machine. These were, these were feelings that were just locking me. The next day after telling her that, I walked out into the world, and it was as if every black person in my community, and at Stanford there were lots, was smiling at me. It was like all the black people were smiling. Now, of course, that's not possible or true. What was happening was I was able to see myself finally as a black person and love that person. I had shed the self-loathing and shame that American racism had heaped upon me. And when I was finally self-loving as a black person, I could then love black people. And I went out into the world, and there they all were waiting for me as if they had as if they had been waiting all along. Um, That's my journey. That's my truth. I don't know that it makes a lot of sense to you as I say it, but every time I get to revisit that aspect of my journey, I am grateful for it. I said at the outset, I finally located a self I could love within blackness, despite my biracial hair and my light skin and my the way I speak and my white mother and the white communities I grew up in. I mean, I spent a long time just trying to figure out who I was and what I was and ultimately located a a self within blackness despite my biraciality or, you know, with my biraciality. I discovered a self and an embracing black community, and that's when things began to go like this. Um, So in the beginning... Yes.
3: Um, I don't remember word for word what you said, but I remember hearing you say, where are you from, um, more than once, right? Yeah. And it reminded me of a James Baldwin anecdote um, where he's speaking about the cab driver. Yeah. And he asks him, like, where are you from? And he says, oh, I was born in Harlem Hospital. He's like, where are your parents from? And then he explains where his parents are from. And then he's like, no, but where are you from? Yeah. And then he's like, that's when he realized. So I wanted to ask, who are some of um, your literary inspirations? And what kind of impacts did they have on Thank your
1: Thank you for that. Oh, appreciate mm-hmm. that. Thank you. Yes, Baldwin, um, who seems more current than ever, more relevant and current. I mean, he was always relevant, but, boy, it's as if he is speaking to us in our time. I say in the book that I didn't have a black mother, but I have a literary black mother, and her name is Lucille Clifton, the poet. Um, I hated poetry, um, all my life <laughs> and then as dean of freshman we had this three books program we we chose three books and assigned them to the freshman class and we brought the authors to be with the freshman class at orientation my office ran that program a faculty member chose the books and one year the faculty member chose Lucille Clifton's good woman and i read it cuz i had to cuz i was going to meet the authors and i did you know i got the privilege of introducing them on stage in front of 1700 freshmen and an hour after beginning good woman i looked up at the clock And realized I'd been hooked, and I felt through Clifton's poetry that if she was possible and this writing was possible, maybe I was possible. I believe that was two thousand and five or six, maybe seven. So right as the unlocking with before the unlocking with my coach happened. I had been exposed to Lucille Clifton's poetry, so she's an example of an inspiration. Claudia Rankine, who wrote, who is a poet and whose most recent book is *Citizen*, with Trayvon's hoodie on the cover, um, is an exquisite, exquisite book, and I read her, um, uh, obviously, quite recently. Um, Toni Morrison. Um, Toni Morrison taught me a lot about what it is to be a black child. Um, Toni. Ms. Morrison, writes a lot about um, skin color and belonging. She has a beautiful new uh, book out called The Origin of Others, and I try to write about otherness. And that book just came out about you know, a month ago, but um, it is her most recent work, and I, of course, devoured it. Um, um, lots, lots and lots of people, um, but, but those are some. Thank you. Anyone? I want to say to the kids in the room because there are kids here. I know I used some language that was difficult, <laughs> and and now your parents are going to go home and talk it out with you or not. The parents are like it's fine, it's fine. Okay, all right. So, all right. Yes, and and we do have a question from the child next, so we will go here and then we will go back to the to the youngster in the back row. Hi,
4: Dean Julie. My name is Lori. Hi, Dean. Um...
1: <laughs> you're I calling me you're... Dean Julie. Why?
4: I'm calling you, Dean Julie, because, and I think you're wonderful. Thank you. I first was introduced to you through your um, "Getting In" podcast. That was excellent. If anyone has a child who's college headed towards college, listen to that. Wonderful. Thank you for that advice. Thank you. I love that podcast, and then I started following you on Twitter. And I thought, look at Dean Julie. It was just—it was wonderful to hear your opinions outside of the world of college admissions and parenting. Yeah, and parenting exactly. And we're politically aligned. And your Twitter account is one of my favorites. It's kind of helped me deal with the post-election misery that we're all in. But um, you have such an important voice, and thank thank you you for sharing all this with your memoir. Thank you. Do you plan on writing more? What's What's next for you? I'm curious because. Are you still working in the, the world of um, academia? No. no.
1: No, I left Stanford five years ago oh, to go okay. get an MFA in writing. Mm-hmm. I had written op-eds. I had given speeches. But I wasn't confident that I could write well across 300 pages. And I wanted to write that book on the harm of helicopter parenting, my first book, How to Raise an Adult.
4: Excellent. Which grew, I've learned much. <laughs> thank thank you, you. Which grew out of
1: my work as a dean. So um, I left five years ago. I am writing and speaking for a living. And I'm finding that incredibly joyful. I'm a corporate lawyer turned university dean, turned writer. I'm in career number three, but always interested in humans, the human condition, the human experience. I'm under contract to write another book. Good. Um, Well, yes, yes, no, of course, it's a great thing. Please don't let me sound ungrateful. But um, the parenting book is work. This Mm. book is my art. Right. The third book will be work. It okay. is a sequel to the first. Oh, okay. So my publisher said, "Yeah, we'll publish your little memoir on race, but we also want a sequel to How to Raise an Adult oh, because that was a New York Times bestseller, and of yes. course they want to, right? So that's going to be something like How to Be an Adult or hashtag #adulting for okay. the millennials in the room, <laughs> you know, the sort of, uh, you know, if How to Raise an Adult was the harm of overparenting, the agency robbing that we do of our mm-hmm. children when we are overparenting." Um, the third book is for the 20 and 30 somethings who are feeling a little bewildered inhabiting their adulthood. Mm-hmm. And that's now due out in 2019, right, good, spring I'll of 2019. So I've got to start writing that in January yeah. when I'm uh, done with book tour uh, for this book. But so, thank you. Thank you. Thank have you. A I appreciate great that. Voice. I appreciate that very much. Thank you. This young man back here. It's on. Oh, loud wow. how, how long did it take you to make the book hi there what's your name owen owen thanks for asking um you know owen they say when you write memoir which is about your own life that you've been writing it all your life that's not really the question you're asking though i know that um actually it took me I began writing it in uh February of 2016 um, for my master's thesis in my MFA program. I graduated with that in May and it was about half the length of this book. It was this book but half of it. Then I sold that to my editor at Holt, which published How to Raise an Adult, and then with my editor I I fleshed it out. She told me what she thought was missing like how did this how did you emerge? You know, I hadn't kind of and um so all in all, I would say it took me about 18 months to write this book, which is quick. And um, this book would have benefited from time in the drawer. <laughs> Those of you who are writers know we're supposed to set our writing aside and come back to it. And there's a reason. Whatever you're enamored of, oh, my gosh, what I it's so amazing. You look at it the next day or the next week or six months later, and you think, wow, this is awful. This part is good, but this is awful. This book couldn't wait in the drawer When I sold it to my publisher last summer, 2016, my editor said, Julie, you've got three references to Donald Trump. You should probably remove them because it'll date the book, because he'll be a footnote to history by the time this book comes out. And of course, that has not turned out to be true. And so what I mean is, this is the moment for this book. And if I had waited six months, you know, who knows, I I might have... If I had given it the time that, as a writer, I might have wanted to give it to, to mature, to be away from me so that I could be more detached as I read it and reread it, um, I might not have the opportunity to contribute to the conversation we're having. So uh, quicker than perhaps ideal, but we have to give life to our books, particularly nonfiction books. When they're relevant um, and timely, we can't miss the time. Hi there. Hey, how you doing? Good, how are you? Um,
2: so in the context of your experience um, in the current times that we live in, um, and you're raising biracial children, what are, what are you teaching them to avoid some of the challenges that you experienced?
1: Um, so my son is 18, and my daughter is 16. And my son looks like me, and my daughter looks, or is a little darker than me, actually. And my, mu- my daughter looks more like her dad, who's white and Jewish. Um, when I was coming up in the 70s, uh, my parents said, you're black. Because that's what parents of mixed kids were told then. There was no biracial or multiracial terminology. And the, the wisdom was, and it was sound, they will be treated as black in America, so they need to have a strong black identity and feel black and proud. Trouble was, my parents raised me in white communities. So they said, we're a black family, you are black. But my childhood lacked um, a cultural connection to blackness. They weren't a part of the black church uh, we weren't connected to, you know, black colleges. We weren't connected to, you know, my, my grandfather helped found an Omega chapter um, in the South 100 years ago, but my dad hadn't been involved in black fraternities. Those are just a few examples of, you know, I mean, we didn't play bidwist. I mean, we, we just, we didn't, we didn't do those things. And so they said we are black, you are black, but left me to sort of my own devices to try to make that a meaningful construct. So I've tried not to do that to my kids. Um, I tell them who they're from, African slaves, African-Americans, white uh, uh, Yorkshire coal miners, that's my mother's ancestry, and my husbands are Eastern European Jews, um, many of whom lost their lives in the Holocaust. And I tell my children, here are the folks you're descended from. You come from people who survived. Be proud of them and be proud of that you have a right to be here. I try to infuse their lives with more of a cultural richness um, by, by talking about issues that matter to the black community, by exposing them to people and ideas, um, by moving to a diverse community. But the diverse community that I chose was not, I think in retrospect, I think I'm about to land an op-ed on this in the Washington Post. Uh, the regrets that I have so about where I raised my kids, So working at Stanford, I live, we wanted the best public schools in the area. Well, that's Palo Alto, heart of Silicon Valley. Very ethnically diverse, Chinese-American, Indian-American, some Korean-American, a lot of white folks. It's about 40% Asian, about 42% white, and the remaining 18%, Latino, about, you know, 9%, black, about 2%. I, didn't, I don't have the numbers all adding up, but you get the point. So my kids have been raised with all kinds of folks, but not enough black folks. And I look across the San Francisco Bay all the time to Oakland, California, and Berkeley, California, and I think if I had to do it all over again, I would take that long commute, you know, an hour and a half could be to Stanford. I would take that commute um, uh, because if uh, my kids and we would have been better off being raised uh, if we had lived in a community like Oakland or Berkeley, which has a really healthy black population. So I've made some of the same mistakes my parents did, um, but I think I've also gotten other aspects of it right. And my son has said to me, thank you for talking to me about these things. You know, I appreciate that I can come to you and talk with you about this. And um, he and I have a connection around race and around ourselves and our identities that I did not have with my own parents. Ultimately, I think whomever we are, we want to keep our kids safe until they can keep themselves safe. Teach them skills, is the book one I wrote, Till they can fend for themselves. Teach them to be safe um, out there, smart and safe out in the world. Teach them to love themselves so they can find love and give love back, you know? And so for all of our kids, it's um, trying to instill in them this sort of strength, this core self, that can withstand what comes. We can't change any other human being. We can't control or prevent or any of that. All any of us has any control over, if we're lucky, is ourselves. And so I think ultimately that's what I'm trying to do, is raise these kids to love themselves, to appreciate and respect who they're from. With my daughter, who's so light, I say in the book that other parents were slathering their kids with sunblock and I was holding mine to the sun. (laughs) <laughs> it sounds, it, it is hilarious, and yet I didn't resemble my mother, and when I found out I was having a girl child, I thought okay, finally someone who looks like me I can teach her what to do with this hair, you know, and she didn't she's got what we call good hair, right, it just, it doesn't it won't hold a barrette. It, you know, it didn't when she was little, it's, it's a little bit more kinky curly now, but, you know, I I know how painful it is. I read how painful it is for people to pass. You know, historically, our people had the, if they were very light, they had the option to pass out of blackness into whiteness and leave behind the only people that ever loved them. You know, passing comes with opportunity. If you can pass for white in a nation founded on white supremacy, that's a helpful thing to pass for white and yet you lose this connection to yourself. So it comes with pleasure, presumably, and pain. My friend Allison Hobbs, a professor of history at Stanford, has written A Chosen Exile on the history of passing. So I do worry about my girl child and her ability to pass in white communities. I worry about what'll happen the first time she hears them say the N-word. And I want her to speak out I want her to scream. I want her to be angry. I want her to say, you're talking about my people rather than pass and let it go. I want her to stand up for Sylvie and I want her to stand up for daddy and I want her to stand up for me even if she doesn't have to. And she's 16 and I don't know how uh, she will be out in the world and a lot of it will have to do with where she lives and with whom she hangs out. Her best friend is a black girl, a biracial black girl, but a girl who presents phenotypically as black and um and um we will see we will see i know time is short you're like i didn't intend to stay here all this time uh i i appreciate all of you if there's maybe one last question i'll take it there we go a.j verdell author of the good negres
0: Thank you. So um, I'm interested in your perspective. I guess this partly comes from your being dean, but um, you know, most people are ordinary. You know, most people are not uh, given a lot of opportunities to be at Stanford or at Harvard or dean or professor. Yeah. And um, as a professor at Morgan a lot of the students who I adore are very ordinary students and the assault has a compounded effect if you don't have you know the level the fluidity with language if you come from a degraded urban education system yeah. so I'm just wondering and I think Julie also this is tied to the notion that It was with the coach that you felt the most catharsis and you began to feel more comfortable. So there's something in adulthood that we have to depend on for people to save themselves. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you think about the ordinary person who probably doesn't get the same opportunities and who may not understand that that cathartic moment could be ahead of them.
1: Yeah. Thank you for that. It gives me an opportunity to um, acknowledge my tremendous privilege, my, pri- my privilege of uh, where to begin. Light skin, highly educated parents, upper middle class status. Um, so thanks for that. Um, I believe in all of us. I believe in all of us humans. I'm interested in all of us getting a chance to just make our way and uh, find work and find love. We, we, uh, I'm about to say we all want to know we matter, and I don't mean that in an all lives matter way, of course. Um, of course, all lives do matter, and the point of black lives matter is we don't, and we just want to matter, too. And so when I think about the ordinary people, as you said, um, I think, you know, to the extent any of us has the opportunity to be in community with people, um, to take an interest in them, in their experience, in their wellness, in their fears, in their truth, in their dreams. I think as educators, we have this privilege of getting to be alongside young humans and helping them on their path wherever they began. There's a next place for them, and there's a future, and there are possibilities. And I think writing is something we all have access to. Almost every single one of us has access. And um, and writing is a, is a way to know ourselves and make sense of ourselves in the world. And... Um, So we, those with a bit more education or a lot more education, you know, can bring this possibility of of written and spoken word um, to communities, can be in community with folks and take an interest in helping them tell their stories and work out their experience. Um, I certainly found healing through writing. Um, um, Well before the coach, I was starting to write volitionally by choice, you know, without regard to work or school about these issues of race that were starting to really eat away at me. Um, I think those of us, particularly in the black community, who have attained a degree or two, who have attained a degree of privilege, of class, we have an obligation not to let those achievements distance us from our broader community. Um, The black community needs every single person it can caring about its betterment, and so I think, bless you, we have, we have an obligation uh, to our community, to those we came from, um, to make sure we're, we're trying to help others come along as well. We also need allies. We also need allies. And sometimes on book tour so far, people have asked me, well, okay, so what do we do? What does it mean to be an ally? And what I've said is an ally, first and foremost, cares about the person, listens to the person's truth, believes the person. How often are we told, are you sure? You know, Do you think it was really that bad? Why don't you just get over it? I'm sure it didn't happen that way. Give them the benefit of the doubt. An ally believes the person who's trying to tell their truth. If the person is a member of a marginalized group, ours is not the narrative that's dominant. It takes courage to voice our truths. And so we need allies who will listen and believe and then flank us so that when we go out in the world, whether it's a classroom or a workplace, or we're out on the street and something happens, you know, and we dare to say, this happened, this is happening, we need our allies to flank us and say, I believe her. Because if allies have privilege, if they have positions of privilege, if they themselves wear privilege as their identity, we need their allyship. You know, I think of it as radical compassion, you know, that allyship means not just liking black folks or folks of color or marginalized folks or gay folks or immigrants or whomever you are focused on. It's not just liking and caring. It's using the privilege you might have to believe and to put that belief into action by flanking, by which I mean standing with and supporting, walking out into the world with. And children and teenagers and adolescents adolescents need this more than any other group because they're not yet reaching that point of adulthood where they can say, doesn't matter what other people think, you know, I'm gonna be all right. I have reached that point, I'm approaching 50, I know, you know what, I'm telling my truth, I'm doing my thing, haters gonna hate, I am all right. But children don't know that. They need us, they need parents, they need teachers, they need aunties and uncles, they need friends, mentors, clergy, to believe in them you know, and to strengthen the truth of their story by standing with them and believing them. I'm starting to feel like I'm going somewhere with this. Okay, I'm gonna just, that's, I think we'll end there. Is that all right? Is there somebody dying to ask another question? We're done, okay, good. Yes, Vivian's like, we're done,
2: we're done. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you all for coming.